Two Sundays ago, we wrapped up chapter 8. We completed chapter 8. We looked at how Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple to avoid being stoned to death by the religious leaders, the Jews, who were angry with him because he exposed their religious hypocrisy, because he exposed their true identity as children of the devil. John chapter 9 presents one historical narrative, one historical story, one historical event, and uh, called the healing of a man born blind. And in previous sermons, I mentioned that the apostle who authored this book through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, John, I, I mentioned to you that, that he included eight miracles in his gospel account and this is not to say that Jesus only performed eight miracles. He performed many, many, many miracles. But John highlights eight miracles for the purpose of proving that Jesus is the divine Son of God and Savior of the world. The healing of this blind man that we're going to examine here in 9 is number 6 on John's list. Number 6. For teaching purposes, I have divided chapter 9 into four sections or four sermons, which I will be calling the four B's. Week 1, we're going to look at blindness, the man's blindness. That's verses 1 through 7. That's today. Week 2, bewilderment. That's verses 8 through 23. Week 3, boldness. We're going to look at boldness, the boldness of the man who is healed as he stands and testifies before the religious leaders. And that's in verses 24 through 34. And then week number four, we'll look at belief. We will look at the man who put his faith in Christ. And that is, that's the blind man who did that. That is verses 35 through 41. So that kind of sets the tone, tempo, direction for the next four or so weeks. Of course, uh, the Holy Spirit can change things up and add a sermon or... Uh, it's just We want to follow His direction, but that's what I have for you, and we'll see how it goes. So if you would be so kind as to please take your Bibles and turn to John 9. As I said, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 7. I'll give you just a moment to turn there. John chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. And I think many of you are there already, so I'll go ahead and read it. It says this, verse 1, as he, speaking of Jesus, as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Number 3, verse 3, Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. And he says in verse 4, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day, Night is coming when no one can work. Verse 5, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Verse 6, having said these things, he spat, this is interesting, he spat on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, this is our last verse, and said to him, go, wash in the pool of Siloam, I think is how it's pronounced, which means sent, parenthetical statement. And then it says, last end of uh, verse 7 here, So he went and washed and came back seeing. 
Let's go ahead and begin with verse 1. Are you ready? We're going to analyze or exposit verse 1 first. We're just going to walk through these seven verses. Verse 1 simply says, As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. Very simple statement. Now, some commentators, some theologians, insert a two-month period of time between the events of John 8 and John 9. In other words, some say that uh, after Jesus left the temple to avoid being executed, there was a two-month period between that and this next event, the coming across of this blind man. And they point to texts like, Luke 13, 22, and say that Jesus was actually on his way back to Jerusalem when he encountered this blind man. Now, this could be true. This could be a proper interpretation. This might be right. There could be a two-month period between 8 and 9, and, and maybe Jesus was headed back into Jerusalem at the time. But chapter 8, in my opinion, chapter 8 seems to flow perfectly into chapter 9. Like there's, it's just the smoothest transition from 8 to 9. There's nothing there that would cause me to think that there was much time at all in between the events of 8 and the event of 9. Listen to it again. This is the end of chapter 8, verse 59. So they picked up stones to throw at him, speaking of Jesus, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. That's how 8 concludes. Here's chapter 9, verse 1. And, and, or as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. I'm not sure how they come up with two-month period between that and what we just read. It, it seems to me that this is a, a continuous narrative here or a continual thing here. It, it seems to me, according to the way it's written and the way it's structured in the context, would appear that Jesus encountered this blind man right after he went out of the temple. We don't know for sure, though. We don't know for sure. And MacArthur comments, he says, the wording is general enough that the precise time and location of the healing cannot be determined. So the wording is generic enough to where it could be, could be any time, I guess. Notice this special detail at the end of verse 1. Blind from birth, it says. This man had been blind his entire life. There was never a time that this man had physical sight, that he had physical vision. In other words, he did not lose his sight because of an eye disorder, glaucoma, cataracts, something of that nature. He did not have sight and then, and then later in life lose his sight or vision. He was born blind and remained blind the entire time. In other words, he never, ever had sight. He'd never seen flowers, he'd never seen trees, he'd never seen faces, he, he'd never seen a camel, he'd never seen the temple. He, I'm sure that he painted visual imagery in his mind as he's listening and hearing because, you know, those who, who lack the ability to see tend to have a heightened ability to hear. But technically, he had never seen, never seen his own face in a mirror, and it would have been hard to do that even if you had sight back then because mirrors were created out of beaten bronze, and it wasn't a very good image. Some of us who are getting older would appreciate that type of mirror. You just don't see the same amount of wrinkles and things. 
And in other words, this man did not need to have his vision restored. You see, restoration is, is the process of returning something to its original state. By definition, that's what restoration is. Have you ever watched a, a show on, uh, on restoration on TV where, where they take an, an older home and they restore it to its former glory? Architecture, design, paint colors, what have you. This man did not need to have his vision restored because restoration is the process of returning something to its original state. The original state of his vision was blindness because he had been born blind. In other words, restoration would do him absolutely no good. What this man needed was recreation, new eyes supernaturally fashioned for him by Jesus. In other words, he needed a new set of eyes. His eyes had never worked. He needed new eyes. The fact that this man was blind may provide us with a clue as to where this actually took place. Since blind people could support themselves only by begging, they usually hung out around the temple. In fact, all around the the temple gates and the entrance, there were blind people and all sorts of people with disabilities and ailments, but particularly there were blind people, and blindness was actually quite uh, common back in this day. But there were blind people all over the place near the temple. This was the best location to be because many, many people would pass by there as they entered the temple. And those who came to the temple tended to be more Charitable, because they were on their way there to what? Worship. This was the place to be if you were a blind person, because there were a lot of people going in and out, and there were a lot of people who were going in there to worship the Lord. People tend to be more charitable when they're going into a mode or time of worship. So I think that chapter 8 and chapter 9 are connected, that Jesus leaves the temple, he goes out, and there's a guy right there. There's many people there, but this guy is the one that Jesus focuses on. Look at verse 2. Verse 2, and his disciples asked him, disciples, we're talking John, Peter, Jesus' disciples, right? And his disciples asked him, they said, Rabbi, which translates as teacher, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents? that he was born blind. What an interesting question to ask. You might say that they were asking, whose fault is it? Whose fault is it that this man is in his condition? Now, Jewish doctrine taught that personal sin is inseparably linked with personal suffering. This is what the Jews believed then. If you sinned, It would lead to, if you sin personally, it would lead to personal suffering. In other words, if you are suffering physically, it's because you sinned or somebody like your parents sinned. This is a common belief then. It's the prevailing belief. When the disciples who obviously held to this doctrine saw the blind man, they were filled with curiosity and wanted to know whose sin had caused his blindness. So they asked Jesus if he knew the answer. Now this 
Jewish doctrine is based on, I think, many false assumptions, but I have four for you, and I want you to pay very close attention to these false assumptions. Again, it's based on at least four. False assumption number one, and now we immediately reply to that theology itself, personal sin, here's the false assumption, personal sin and personal suffering are inseparably linked. This is simply not true. Think of Job. His suffering was not the result of his own personal sin. It was the result of multiple satanic attacks. Job chapter 1, verse 12, Job 2, verse 7. If you look at Job, and many people think it's Job, so they look there so they can find a job. His name is Job. If you look at chapter 1 of Job and verse 1, it describes Job. God describes Job as upright and blameless. This does not mean that he was without sin or perfect, but he was a righteous man who displayed his righteousness in in incredible ways, protecting his eyes from leading him to lust. He even prayed for his own children because he knew they were sinners. How many of you parents pray for your children because you know they sin? This man was a... People were like, "I, I don't want to put my hand up. My kid's sitting next to me. They're like... Pray for him. He was an upright and blameless man. His sin was not a response to his own personal, or his suffering was not a response to his own personal sin. Better yet, if we're going to say that this is an absolute truth, that when you sin, you will, it will result in personal suffering, how do we deal with Jesus? Was his suffering the direct result of his own personal sin? Of course not. He was without sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21, there's a multitude of verses that show that. On the other hand, or contrary to what I'm saying here, or speculating here, is that his suffering was not the result or direct result of his sin. It was the direct result of our sin. 1 Peter 3.18 Scripture also describes Jesus as suffering at the hands of sinful men. Now, we must understand that personal sin can result in personal suffering. It can. Moses' sister Miriam was struck with leprosy immediately after sinning against her brother Moses. Numbers 12.10. She rebels against his authority. Bam, she's struck with leprosy. Her sin brought leprosy upon her in a second. So it can happen. But to say that personal sin is inseparably linked with personal suffering is inaccurate and unbiblical. Well, I would say that all suffering is directly linked to the fall of man. This is when sin entered the human race. But not all personal suffering is directly linked to one's own personal sin. So what I'm telling you is is the disciples who believe this are under a false assumption. He brought this on himself, not necessarily. And the question I would ask is, how could he have possibly done that when he was born blind? Did he sin in the womb? We'll deal with that in a moment here. False assumption number two. Again, this is the false assumption that was prevailing in that day. The human soul exists before 
being joined with a physical body and can sin during this pre-existent state, which can bring punishment to the physical body. You're thinking, that sounds like Star Trek. What? The, the souls of men are just kind of floating around there in the, in the nebulous, and then, then they're somehow joined to physical bodies, but those souls can sin? It sounds absolutely crazy, but it's what many people believed in that day. Birth defects were therefore seen as punishments for the soul's past sins. <laughs> Isn't that extraordinary? This line of thinking is rooted in Greek philosophy. And many Hellenistic, that would be Greek-influenced Jews, believed it. They believed this. The Bible does not support this view. It teaches that the soul is, is created at conception, not beforehand. In other words, your soul does not exist before conception. At the moment of conception, the soul is created along with the physical body. Genesis 2.7 says, The Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And it says, And man became a living soul. You know the text. I see you wording it. That's great. It's at that moment that man becomes a living soul. His soul didn't exist prior. The Bible also teaches that that we are sinners at conception and that we come into the world as sinners. Psalm 51.5 and many other passages. If the soul is created at conception and we are conceived as sinners, right? That's the moment that we become a sinner is when we're conceived. How can the soul exist prior to conception and how can it be sinful? It's illogical. The entry point for our soul and sinfulness is conception. The only thing about people that exist prior to conception is maybe their parents' desire to have a child, and this is not always the case, and God's foreknowledge and predestinating plan for their lives. That's the only part of you that exists prior to that is a parent's hope to have a kid. No guarantee there. But God's foreknowledge, God's predestinating plan. Other than these things, nothing else about us exists. I stress these points because there is such a thing as reincarnation that exists. We see it in various religions, Hindu, Hinduism and things like this. Reincarnation, which is rooted in ancient Greek philosophy, is wrong. The soul does not exist prior to conception, nor does it jump from body to body until a person gets it right. So that's a... The second false assumption, the idea of the soul existing prior to conception and the soul sinning and bringing sin into the physical baby. And that's where those ailments and disabilities come from. It's ridiculous and preposterous to say such things, but it's what many people there believed. False assumption number three, <laughs> preborn babies can sin in the womb, which can result in punishment. Birth defects, deformities, etc. <laughs> this is what they believed. Now, I, some of you mothers might say, wow, uh, little Jimmy, he's going to be born in three months, sure is kicking around in there. I wonder what he's doing. Is he playing soccer? He's sinning against me. 
Well, he's not sinning, he's just moving. The Bible, again, does not support this view. Sin, let me, let me give you the proper biblical definition of what sin is. Okay? Maybe you've been wondering what it is. Sin is described scripturally as transgression of the law of God. We see that clearly in 1 John 3, 4, as well as rebellion against God. Deuteronomy 9, 7, Joshua 1, 18. Human beings are conceived and born as sinners. I've already covered this. But how can an unborn child transgress God's law or rebel against God? He or she does not yet possess the ability to do this. If an unborn child does not yet possess the ability to transgress God's law, to rebel against Him, sin by definition, how can he or she be punished for their sin? God does not hold preborn babies accountable for their imputed sinful nature, nor does He punish them. And I think the same rule applies to newborns and infants and toddlers and, and younger children who do not yet understand their own sinfulness, do not yet understand the law of God, do not yet understand their need of forgiveness in Christ alone. Children can, however, be impacted by their parents' sin. Babies born to promiscuous mothers who've picked up sexually transmitted diseases like Gonorrhea can, and I'm talking about the babies who are born to mothers who have gonorrhea, can contract that disease in their eyes as they pass through the birth canal. And this can result in blindness if it goes untreated. Mother's sin of promis uh, being promiscuous and sleeping around or what have you can result in a social disease, a sexually transmitted disease, which can impact an unborn child. Babies born to alcohol, tobacco, or drug-addicted mothers tend to be born addicted. Meth moms often produce meth babies. I use that terminology because we have a number of nurses who call this church home, and, and some of them work in prenatal care and deal with meth babies all the time. Baby isn't a meth user, mama was. Think even broader than this, the Hebrew children of the Exodus. These poor kids suffered through 40 years of wilderness wandering because of the sins of their parents' generation. Exodus 34, 7. This is the idea of, of one generation after another paying for the sins of a previous generation. We're not actually paying for those sins, but being exposed to the devastatedness of sin. The Babylonian captivity in Daniel is another phenomenal example. Daniel was a godly young man, Daniel 1.8, and yet he and his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, what, were carted off to Babylon because of their sins, because of their rebellion? No, because of the sins of their parents' generation and the generations before them. So you can see that babies clearly cannot sin in the womb, and yet a parent's sin can impact future generations, and more specifically, babies born to them. False assumption number four, and this is very interesting, but again, true of that time. 
Children can be held responsible and punished for their parents' sins. This view was widely accepted by the ancient Jews. And yet again, it's another false assumption. It's not something that the Bible supports. The Bible clearly, lucidly teaches that that people are held accountable and punished for their own sins, not the sins of others. Deuteronomy 24, 16, Fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor children be put to death because of their fathers. Each one shall be put to death for his own sin. Ezekiel 18, 20, The soul who sins shall die. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. And there are other verses Logically speaking, because I like to think logically, and believe it or not, your Bible is completely logical. Logically speaking, if children are punished for their parents' sin, then children can also be delivered by their parents' faith. Right? Or if I have to pay the price for my parents' sin, then their faith should be able to save me. If the guilt is transferred, then faith and deliverance can also be transferred. Another verse that completely wrecks this line of thinking is Jeremiah 31, 30, verse A. It simply says, all people will die for their own sins. You're not going to pay for your parents' sins or the past generation's sin. They're responsible for that. You're responsible for you. You're not responsible for your kids' sins. You're not responsible for your parents' sins. You're not responsible for your spouse's sins. You're responsible for your sins. Now, the disciples may have had a hybrid view with bits and pieces of of each of these four false assumptions. They reckoned that the man had been born blind because of all of the above. And they wanted Jesus to affirm their suspicions. Let's look at Jesus' answer in verse 3. Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. (laughs) Jesus clearly was not interested in discussing the current controversies that surrounded personal sin and personal suffering with his disciples. He didn't want to have this theological conversation with them of trying to figure out whose fault it was. He didn't want to have to sift through the many false assumptions and correct their line of thinking when it comes to that. But he does correct them. My paraphrase of his correction, neither personal sin nor parental sin caused his blindness. Now, Jesus did not mean that this man had never sinned. Nor did he mean that his parents had never sinned. What he meant is that it was not any special sin of his or of his parents which had caused his blindness. He's not granting the guy clemency. He knows the man is a sinner because all men, all people are sinners. But Jesus is like, what's happening here is not about this. Where you guys are going in your thought process and your speculation is not where we should be, is what Jesus is saying. 
And after correcting the disciples, Jesus steers their minds and focus back onto the mission. Authenticate the deity and messiahship of Jesus through the proclamation of the gospel and through the working of supernatural signs and wonders. That's the mission that's at stake here. Not to sit around and try to figure out why this guy's in his situation. I love how Roger Fredrickson put it. He says, we humans persist in wanting to know who to blame. We discuss the matter endlessly, sometimes earnestly, but often foolishly. However, Jesus brushes his disciples' questions aside. He does not focus on the past, nor is he interested in answering theological speculation, for he sets the needs of this man in the context of what God can do. And I want you to notice the divine purpose for this man's blindness in the second half of verse 3. It says that the works of God might be displayed in him. Jesus simply tells him it's not about his sin or about his parents' sin. Let me give you a divine purpose here. It's about the fact that God can display his power in this guy, his purposes in this man. That God's works of power, supernatural power, can be displayed in Him. Now, His blindness was permitted and ordained by God. Not because the man was specially wicked, but in order to furnish a platform for the exhibition of a work of divine mercy and power. God did not cause his blindness. And as I said earlier, all suffering essentially results from the fall. God can inflict people with diseases. God can inflict people with suffering. God can inflict people with blindness. We have many examples of that in the Old Testament. But these things are inherent and will happen whether God inflicts them or not. As long as sin is in the world, disease and death will be in the world. God did not cause his blindness, but he permitted it and he ordained it so that at the appointed time, Jesus could display God's divine power, heal him, and thus prove that he is the light of the world. Verse 5, chapter 8, verse 12. Think about it. Bringing a man out of physical darkness would be a convincing proof that Jesus is indeed who he says he is. It's one thing. It's one thing to say that you are the light of the world. A lot of men made these claims in this day. False messiahs abounded. But it's quite another thing to say it and then display it by giving a blind man sight. Big difference. And this is what sets Jesus apart from all others. He said something and then he would do it. Now let's look at verses 4 and 5. Jesus is still correcting them. He says, We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world I am the light of the world. Here, 
Jesus basically exhorts his disciples to steer clear of controversial issues and theological speculation because the time is short. This is Jesus' fancy way of saying, we don't have enough time to be doing what you're doing. These men needed to stay focused on the works of him who sent Jesus, the Father, because what? Jesus describes it as night is coming. Well, what are the works of the Father? What are the works of him who sent Jesus? Well, his works are many, but here, according to MacArthur, it has to do with putting God's power on display for man's benefit. What did Jesus mean by night is coming? Was he referring to actual nightfall? Was he referring to actual physical darkness? No. MacArthur again suggests that he was referring to the period between his death on the cross and the coming of the Holy Spirit on Pentecost. 52 and a half days, that 52 and a half day period. Darkness is represented by the fact that Jesus' literal hands-on ministry, as he's doing ministry physically through his own person, it's the idea that darkness is represented by the fact that Jesus' literal hands-on ministry would be complete at the cross, essentially, and that the disciples would be unable to minister on Jesus' behalf until the arrival of the Holy Spirit on Pentecost. So the period of darkness is that span of 52 and a half days between his death on the cross and the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit comes. Do you know what some of the disciples did during that 52 and a half days? They didn't have the Holy Spirit. They didn't have divine power. Jesus was not. Jesus was there for a little bit, but he left. He was sent up about 10, 15 days before the ascension, but he wasn't actively doing ministry any longer. But do you know what some of the disciples actually did during that period of time after the resurrection? And before Pentecost, they went back to fishing. Why? They had no power. You don't believe they went back to fishing? Read John 21, verses 1 through 3. They're going out to fish. Jesus reminds them that as long as He is in the world, He is the light of the world. What do you mean by this? Well, He was not suggesting that He would cease to be the light of the world after His ascension, return to heaven. He is and always will be the light of the world. He was simply acknowledging the fact that as the light of the world, He shone most clearly and brightly during His earthly ministry. You must understand that Jesus' exhortation here is for all believers. We are to what? Make the best use of the time because the days are evil. Ephesians 5.16. How do we make the best use of the time by sticking to the mission of the church. What is the mission of the church? Well, some people will tell you it's social justice today. Some people will tell you it's this or that or redeeming culture and all of these things. The mission of the church is none of these things. These things, it's not that they're not important, but they're not the mission of the church. Mark 16, 15 and Matthew 28, 19 through 20. Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. There's the mission of the church. Proclaim the gospel, make disciples. And guess what? When we're making disciples, people are being transformed by God's love and power. Social justice happens and everything else happens. But those things are not the mission of the church. The mission of the church is the gospel. Stick to the gospel, friends. 
Were these guys sticking to the gospel while trying to figure out what happened to this guy? They didn't have any gospel in them. They were not men of the gospel in that moment. Quite frankly, if you analyze the gospel, uh, if you look at the four gospels and, and look at the patterns of his disciples, most of the time they were not about the gospel. They were about bringing fire on one community or which one of us is the best and will be seated at your right hand, Jesus. They were more like Phil. Maybe like you. That is the gospel, and that is the mission of the church, is to proclaim the gospel, to apply the gospel, make disciples, train people on what Jesus wants for his people. Verses 6 through 7, Jesus heals the blind man. He heals him. Look at it with me. So he corrects his disciples. Now he moves to the healing. It says, verse 6, Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Ew. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. And then it says, So he went and washed and came back seeing. How phenomenal. Now, I've just seen a lot of miracles in the Bible, but I think this has got to be one of the most bizarre miracles of healing in Scripture. Amen? I mean, that's just, just like, wow, that's bizarre, that's interesting, that's different. It consists of saliva or spittle, dirt, and water from a pool. Three things that I don't care much for. Now, you must understand that in those days, saliva was believed to have healing powers. Not by Jews, but by Gentiles, non-Jews. Interestingly, this belief has carried over into our day. And you're thinking, oh, come on. It has. If you don't believe me, then why do people stick their thumb in their mouth immediately after striking it with a hammer? Oh! It's precisely why people do it, whether they realize it or not. Or why do they stick their finger in their mouth? And that's pretty gross to stick your finger in their mouth, and I just did it, I'm probably going to catch something. But why do they stick their finger in their mouth after getting a tiny little paper cut? My wife said, it's because they don't want to get blood everywhere. Maybe. But I think psychologically, we think, ooh, that makes it feel better. Why do moms pepper their little munchkins, boo-boos, and owies with kisses? Come here, little baby. Let mama put a little sugar on it and make it better sugar? Is that not what moms do? And the kid goes away like the arm is fully restored even though the bone's sticking out? I feel much better. Mom puts sugar on it. it. Does this not happen? Is it the kiss or is it the saliva? Some would say it's the kiss that makes it feel better, but the saliva is behind it. People thought saliva had healing powers back then and they still do today. That's not what this is about here. But that is a common belief in that day, not held by the disciples, but certainly held by Gentiles, non-Jews around there. And this is not the only time where Jesus uses a little spittle in healing. In Mark 7.33, it says He used spittle to restore a deaf, mute man's hearing and speech. He actually stuck His fingers in His ear. We used to call that giving somebody a wet willy. The guy's 
Hearing comes back. He touches his tongue with his finger and his speech comes back. It's quite an extraordinary miracle. But saliva, spittle was involved. In Mark 8.23, Jesus literally spits on a man's face. He spits on his eyes. I got this. (laughs) And his sight is restored, literally restored. That's incredible. Next thing you know, you'll start seeing this in churches. We're having a healing service today. People are spitting all over each other. It's ridiculous. But I'll tell you what's interesting about this text and the process here. This is the only occurrence in Scripture where we see Jesus combine His spittle with dirt from the ground. After combining them and creating a a clay, because that's essentially what water and dirt create, mud, but you can fashion it into clay. After combining the spit with the dirt, He creates a clay-like substance, and then He anoints the man's eyes with it. He basically put mud pies over his eyes. And then he tells him to go wash. And that's like, how do you, I mean, you're already blind. That's a nightmare. How do you get the pool already? And you're walking around with mud pies on your eyes? Now, why did he do this? Why did he take the spit and, and use the spit and the dirt and make clay? Why did he do this? Well, we don't know for sure. There's no description. There's no explanation. Some of the early church fathers suggest that Jesus formed new eyes for him from the clay. They tie verse 6 to Genesis 2-7, where we see God creating man from the dust of the earth. Earlier I told you that the blind man did not need to have his vision restored. Restoration would simply return his vision to its original state. Blindness, what he needed, was recreation, new eyes, supernaturally fashioned for him by Jesus. Is this what Jesus did with the clay? Did he make him eyes? Like the early church fathers suggest. We don't know for sure, but I like to think he did. After anointing his eyes with the clay, Jesus commanded that he go to the pool of Siloam and wash out his eyes. And what does he do? He obeys. Obeying the Lord is a sign of what? Faith or at very at least the powerful Holy Spirit drawing of a man in this moment. But I think the man believed. But he obeys. The Lord touches him, anoints him, and sends him, and he goes. And he can't even see Jesus. He can only hear Jesus. Now, the pool of Siloam was located south of the temple area, and it was fed by a subterranean tunnel that was connected to the Jihon Spring. King Hezekiah constructed the tunnel about 700 years before Christ. The purpose of his tunnel system was to bring water inside the city walls and deny access to invaders who would almost always take advantage of irrigation canals or aqueducts bringing water in the city. They would come in by canoe into the city through those canals. And so Hezekiah is like, that's not happening anymore. So he builds a tunnel system so the enemy can't use it. Now, water flowed out of the pool of Siloam and flowed right down into the inner part of the city where it was accessible to the residents. And I I love the connection of the water of the pool of Siloam, especially when you consider what Jesus told the woman at the well in chapter 4 of John. I am the living water. 
There's water involved in the miracle here. Notice again John's parenthetical statement in the middle of verse 7. It reads, which means sent. Siloam is a Hebrew word. It's not an Aramaic word. It's not a Greek word. It's a Hebrew word, and it does mean sent. It can refer to the water that is sent from the Jihon Spring to the pool of Siloam. It can refer to the blessings that God sent to His people. Rain and water were considered His blessings, especially in that region, which is very dry. And it can refer to God's ultimate blessing to His people, Jesus the Messiah, the one sent from God. And this is precisely who John is pointing to here. The parenthetical points to the one whom God sent, Jesus. When the blind man, I would almost want to say miraculously, makes it to the pool of Siloam, because how how do you navigate? How do you move around? How do you get around as a blind person? It certainly wouldn't be easy. But when the blind man made it to the pool of Siloam, what does he do? He washed out his eyes. He washed out his eyes, and and the miracle was now complete. He could see. He could see. Can you imagine what this must have been like for him? It's difficult for us to imagine what it must have been like for him because we can all see. You talk about sensory overload, explosion of light and colors flooding in. His mind is, it's like scanners. He's ready to blow. He's taking it all in. In, in, in a second here, he, he, can, he can match sounds with pictures and imagery. Instead of merely hearing people's voices, he could now see their faces. It must have been an incredible thing for him. But the bigger point is that Jesus once again proves that his testimony is true. He proved that He is indeed the light of the world, that He is indeed God's Messiah, that He is indeed the Son of Man, that He is indeed the Son of God. Jesus proved it over and over and over. And of course, if you read the rest of the story, it's quite extraordinary. There's more denial than anything else. And we'll get into that in the coming weeks. Closing. Maybe this is where the rubber meets the road for us. So far, it's been highly informational. But this would be the application, I think. Of course, my applications tend to be a sermon in and of themselves. But that's okay, because we need to figure out what we need to apply. And there are many, many subjects here that we've looked at. There are many, many things that could be said. There are many more things that could be said. There are many things that could be applied. I would like to focus on one particular thing that I see here. It happened to be very, very convicting for me personally. I begin by saying when the disciples saw the blind man, they did not see the blind man. They saw a theological subject they could discuss with Jesus and one another. Is that not what happened? There is a 
blind beggar outside of the temple, more than likely is where he's at, and he needs help. He is at the temple because he knows that the people there will help him. And he's doing what he does every day, and he's been doing it his whole life, and we don't know how old he was, but later on in the narrative, his parents say he's of age, which means he's above 13, 13 or above, because that is the adult age for Jewish people then. When they come out of the, the temple, they see a blind man, but that's not who they see. They see a subject, someone they can talk about, someone they can discuss. Quite frankly, I was disgusted when I saw their reply and then when I applied it to myself and see how I reply to those around me. Instead of showing him compassion, they maybe you didn't pick up on this, but instead of showing him compassion like other temple visitors would have been doing, they talked about his disability and the potential reason for it right in front of him. Well, what caused this man's sin? Uh, can I get a coin? I, I, I'm hungry. I can't do anything. Well, what caused this man... What caused his sin, Jesus? Was, was it his own personal sin? Was it the sin of his parents? Look at him, he's blind. What a mess. Whose fault is it? <laughs> Instead of somehow supporting him like others did at the temple, they discuss his disability and try to figure out who to blame for it. Surely someone is to blame for this, Jesus. Whose sin? Whose Fault, was it? i got to be fair with the disciples. They had probably seen so many, so many multitudes of blind beggars that they had become callous to that man's situation. It is possible to be inundated, desensitized, to people around you because there's so many people that are in those situations. And I think that's what actually happened. It's very easy for us to have the same attitude today toward people who are sick, toward people who are out of work, toward homeless. But instead of viewing them with curiosity, instead of speculating as to why they are in that situation, like I have done while driving. Well, look, you know that guy's on dope. Instead of, instead of viewing them with curiosity, instead of speculating as to why they are in their current situation, maybe we should pray for them. Maybe we should look for ways to share the gospel with them. And you can apply this to, 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 to anything or to anyone. It doesn't just have to be homeless people, which we happen to have about 2,000 in our county. They're everywhere. It can be to your aging parents. It can be to anyone where you just do not see them for who they are or their condition. And the fact that they need help, and you're like, I don't want to do it. And you just want to talk about them or just ignore them. Well, I would say this, and I believe the Lord impressed this upon my heart, and it's just a simple 
truth. People are not theological subjects to be discussed. People are not theological subjects to be discussed. They are image bearers who need to either be saved by the gospel or sanctified by the gospel. And it is our mission as the people of God, as, as Christians, as disciples of Jesus, to give them the gospel. It is our mission to make disciples of all nations. Is this what we are doing? Or are we spending our time discussing, speculating, complaining about people? Are we spending our time even pursuing things that don't even matter? Some of us are addicted to leisure. Some of us are addicted to various hobbies. I certainly wrestle with that from time to time. Let the wisdom in words of Charles Spurgeon convict you now. He said this in a sermon, and I was going to read half the sermon, then I realized we don't have enough time. But listen to what he said in a sermon. Every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. One or the other. Are we missionaries or are we imposters? If we are sharing the gospel with others, we are missionaries. If we are keeping it to ourselves, we are imposters. There is no third option. Psalm 40, verse 10a says, I have declared your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not hid your loving kindness and truth from the great assembly. Does King David's testimony describe us? When was the last time we declared God's faithfulness? His salvation, His loving kindness, His truth to the people who assemble near us at home, at church, at work, at school, at wherever. I want to encourage you to look for opportunities to do this this week. I encourage you to be a missionary who shares the gospel this week and the week after and the week after. Spurgeon also said, He who does not pine to lead others to Jesus has never been under the spell of love himself. If we have no desire to share the gospel, no desire to see men, women, and children delivered from sin, slavery, and Satan, something is terribly wrong with us. It could be that we have never truly experienced God's love. There are many in the church today who view God's love merely as a theory 
They know God loves them because they've been told this a million times, but they don't really believe it deep down, and their lives remain unchanged. I was telling my wife about this point yesterday. I said, we need to get back to preaching law and grace. The church today focuses entirely on one attribute of God, and it's His love, and we are doing a disservice to those who listen to us. God has other attributes. One of them is justice. The gospel is no remedy if we don't understand our condemnation. And I want to tell you, if this is you, if you believe in God's love as a theory, which means it hasn't, it's just something you understand with your mind. It hasn't taken seat or place in your heart. It's something that you theorize. I know he loves me. I can see the cross. I've been told that and yet your life is completely unchanged. I want to say this to you. God's love is not a theory. It is real. It is transformative. It penetrates the deepest recesses of our being and makes us new creations who love and obey God. His real and transforming love can only be experienced through the power of the Holy Spirit and by grace through faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Repent of your sin. Turn to Jesus as Lord and Savior. Believe that He lived for you. That's how you get your righteousness, is through His perfect obedience. Believe that He died for you. That's, that's how He pays your sin debt to God. That's how He satisfies the justice and wrath of God. Believe that He was buried for you. That's how He settles your account. Believe that He rose from the grave three days later for you. Why did He rise? For our justification, for our own resurrection. Believe that He lived, died, was buried, and rose three days later for you. Now you can begin to grow in God's love and begin to share it with others. Amen? Amen.